0: school, I did my internship in medicine, and then I did my orthopedic residency all at the University of Washington. I thought I was going to be an invasive cardiologist before there was invasive cardiology. Um, And I was on the green medicine service, which was the um, oncology service, which at the time was the early stages of bone marrow transplants. And in one month, I think I lost 20 patients. And so I decided that I wanted to be someplace where I could actually make an impact and, and not have people die. And that, just re, that actually reinforced my predisposition to go to orthopedics. It was at this stage where, since I'd gone to the University of Washington Medical School and done research as a medical student, I had a backdoor. Um, so I basically had a nearly guaranteed spot to come in as an R2 but any lingering doubts that I had were gone after that month. Um, well, it's, that's a long story in itself, but the short version is uh, Jeff and I, Jeff Mass and I met in Reinhold Kans's office in 1983, um, just before the first periostabular osteotomy was done. And they were discussing the rationale for a single approach um, reorientation procedure. Um, and so I had never met Jeff before that. So I was there for a year. Jeff was there for a year. We Be- became good friends. He went back to USF, University of South Florida. I went back to Harborview. Um, he subsequently then went from there to um, to Detroit. Um, and so he was in Detroit when I decided to um, vacate uh, after a small, small hiatus and go to join him in Detroit. Um, and that was 95 through 2001. So much of our careers were accidental um, or fortuitous. That's, that's, a, that's probably a more appropriate term. Um, when I left for Europe, my, my, my chief, Ted Hansen, who is probably more responsible for me being in orthopedics than anybody else, um, Uh, arranged by letter in those days for me to spend time with Emile Lutronel. And at that point, Jeff had already been there. Um, And so I split my time between Paris and Bern for that year going back and forth, spending time with Emile, helping him with the teaching slide collection, being in the OR with him and then coming back and spending time with Jeff um, and Ryan Holt. And at that point, when I was in my residency, I thought that the treatment of hip dysplasia was an acetabuloplasty because that's what we did in Seattle. Um, we just stuck a bunch of bone on the outside of the capsule and hoped for the best, which in kids sometimes worked okay, and actually there have been some decent results. But uh, So I was had my mind blown when, I, when we were talking about reorienting an acetabulum in 1983, just before the first one was done in 1984. Um, and I was there, but I couldn't see anything. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was quite an experience. That's a tough call because I had, I really had three. Um, I think first and foremost, it was, it was, it was Ted Hansen. I think he was by far the best sort of, um, career advancement chief you could have because he basically gave you an opportunity and step back and didn't look over your shoulder. So, um, at a point in time when I almost, uh, didn't make it through my residency because hard to believe I had a few personal conflicts, uh, Ted intervened and, um, the rest is history, but Ted was an an extremely capable, um, as a leader because he knew how to select people and how to advance careers and not be threatened by them. So you see so many chiefs that don't want to see people succeed because it threatens them in some way. And he was the prototype for that. And then um, Lesternell was just one of the most gracious persons on the planet. Um, he, gave, he gave me so much, and he gave so much to Eric Johnson and Jeff and, and Claude Martinbeau and Joel Matta. I mean, all, all those careers were made by Emil. And then lastly i had jeff you know i had had the most demanding and the most uh uh talented partner in history in orthopedics i think so um if i had been a failure after that exposure i would have nobody to blame but myself i think it's probably my first s tabular case uh, when i was a chief resident because in those days Without naming names, we I was at Harborview and we were doing um, exploratory acetabular surgery, so we were doing a floppy lateral, doing a coxalang and back and end of the ephemeral, um, which was great for transverse fractures because you could control both limbs simultaneously. But frequently we didn't know <laughs> prior to the surgery what the exact diagnosis was. Um, and so we had to be done in two hours basically because the attending physician didn't have the, um, well, I think the patients was a good surgeon, but basically wanted to be done. And so we were repairing the abdomen, the abdominal walls, back to the iliac crest and he said, Oh, don't worry about that. And just sort of zipped it shut and the reduction wasn't too bad. It wasn't great. But I remember because the guy had a, had a BMI of about 18 and he came back to clinic and his abdominal wall had a VULST, that uh, would be a little bit more, shall we say, demanding. Yeah, I think the hardest thing for all of us is that, um, is financial, re- finances have basically driven everything. And so, um, there's so much more emphasis on throughput so that it starts at the very beginning of, uh, residency training. People want cases to be done rapidly with short turnovers which limits in many ways, resident exposure. And then when you get to the point where you're doing your own cases, um, there's a financial disincentive uh, to be meticulous as well. so I think uh, that is far and away, I think the most difficult thing for younger surgeons to deal with is to take the additional time that they need to be satisfied with the outcome. I mean, Steven, Stephen Ersk and I were notoriously slow you know, they, they, they were the joke made that we didn't need a clock in our room, we needed a calendar. And we sort of rolled with that. And the funny thing was that we were slow, but we had low complication rates, and the outcomes were good. And when family members of the OR team had problems, they didn't go to the guys that got done in 15 minutes. But they came to Steve and I, and I, that was always the, sort of the ultimate sort of compliment. I think... The, the thing that I've been most fortunate with is being able to, to have a wide exposure and, and, and teach and, and interact in a variety of different environments. And so I've seen people that I've met during or at formative stages in their training. And fortunately, my friends in South America and in Asia have come back and met me at meetings 10 years down the line and shown me what they've done. And, and basically commented on the impact of the, the training that we as a group in AO, have provided. And that's probably the most gratifying thing you can, ask, you can ask for is that as you, just as I look at the faculty that came behind me at Harborview, and, and if you use the, the standard that if you can't train multiple people to do your job better than you did at every stage in your career, then you've been a failure. And so I think that's the ultimate ultimate, um, ratification. Well, it was sort of in the water at Harborview, uh, cause Ted was, Ted Hanson was uh, a very early promoter of, um, and involved in AO teaching. And, and so I went to my first AO course when I was a third year resident, um, because Ted had, we were, we were Bert Cloudy, who was in Dallas in those days. Um, invited representatives from University of Washington and and, um, and Ray White from uh, University, of, uh, University of Vermont, I think, to come as table instructors for the first course. So that's how I started. And once I started, you know, I never looked back. I mean, I just had, whenever I was asked, I always said, yeah, because I always learned more in every course than I taught and it snowballs. And then you develop friends and those friends introduce you to other friends and the more people you know and the more different perspectives you have the better chance that you're not going to miss opportunities for your patients and certainly not kind of miss opportunities for making your career more satisfying yeah i think the hardest thing just sort of goes back to what we started with and that is um, sort of developing your own um Scale for accomplishments and success, and being um, unwilling to compromise and to rush, and um, and understanding that all the fire, the, all the pressures that are there, and being resistant to them, and always doing the best thing for the patients. I mean, I think everybody in my year in residency made a lot more money than I did over the years. Um, but my ultimate luxury was to always take as long as I felt necessary for every case and to never look at insurance cards. I didn't really care who who was paying the bill. And I looked at the problem and, and almost always tried to look at the patient from a more, shall we say, neutral position. So... I, I know there are financial pressures after residency and, and, and training and, um, and debt and everything else and all those things play a role, um, but you can't be pushed early on in a career to go beyond a, a certain speed and especially if we look at how steep the learning curve is the first year after your fellowship. Um, it's steeper than any other point in your career and uh, so I think that's the, the key part and then the second part of that is if, if you're not in an environment where you're allowed to do your best work then you have to be willing to move and that's an even more difficult decision so um, all all environments are not equal and so maybe I've moved too many times um, but I think that uh, you, you need to Be able to draw a line in the sand and if it's um if it's beyond what you can accept based on all of your training together then i think it is time to move and have the courage to do that well you're someone we tremendously respect and admire so thank you for this all right thanks for okay have a good evening you too